Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 191. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, first and foremost, let me apologize for me being out of pocket for quite some time and not releasing a lot of interviews. Uh, let me bring you up to speed. A lot of things are happening behind the scenes, and I'm sorry that I haven't been keeping you up to date, but i got to tell you, life's busy with uh, the family and the, the kids and everything else, and but a lot of things happening behind the scenes. First and foremost, I wanted to tell you that this show, Dose of Leadership, is going to be picked up on a local FM radio station here in Wichita, Kansas, to be launched here in early January, maybe late December, but probably more likely early January. So a lot of the interviews that I'm doing from here on out will also be hosted on this local FM radio station on 99.7 Light FM here in Wichita. So that's big news for me, huge deal. And so that's where a lot of my time has been spent. I've already recorded a handful of interviews at the radio station. And so those interviews will be posted here on Dose of Leadership 2. So I don't don't worry, though they can be found here, but they can also be found locally on an FM radio station here in Wichita. So again, that's the big news. The second big thing is Fortune Magazine. Uh, online has listed this podcast as a top nine business podcast. And so that's exciting news. And so things just keep happening. I have uh, more speaking gigs, picked up some more coaching clients and group coaching clients. And so it's just been really busy. So my apologies. But again, Dose of Leadership is not going away. If anything, more and more interviews with bigger guests and more exciting guests are coming in 2015. So stay tuned for that. So again, thank you for your patience and your understanding. And thanks again for your support. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be having all the success I am on the front of uh, the new um, radio show and uh, also with Fortune Magazine writing it up. And it's all because of you. Thanks for your support and thanks for tuning in. Okay, so this interview coming up is Cheryl Atkinson. I don't know if you're very familiar with her or not, but she is a was and still is an investigative reporter, but she was primarily with CBS for a long time. She was in a, at CNN back in from 1999-93, and then uh, and, and she started with CBS, and she was there for quite some time, almost 20 years, I believe, and she just left earlier this year, and she wrote a new book called Stonewalled, and it's all about her fight for truth against forces of obstruction, intimidation, and harassment from uh, the government, and it's really amazing. Now, I know, I know, you might think, okay, this is a political it's not a political show. It's not. And I got to tell you, she is probably one of the best political agnostics that I know out there. She is one that is relentless. And we talk about leadership. We talk about the pursuit of truth, about being courageous. And I tell you, Cheryl Atkinson fits the bill. And this book, Stonewalled, is 
It was a great read. I read it in two nights, and I highly encourage you to go out there and read it. I don't care where you stand on the political spectrum. It's for everybody. If you're an American, this book is important because it highlights a lot of things that you may or may not have been aware of, even if you are aware and tuned into uh, some of the hot topics of the day from Benghazi to Fast and Furious. I mean, she details all of her investigative journalism, and she is just relentless. We need more people like her. Uh, kind of holding people accountable. And that's really what's so great about this book. It's all about accountability and transparency and fearlessness. And I got to tell you, Cheryl Atkinson fits that bill. So again, I hope you enjoy the interview. I'll check in with you after the interview to hit some of the key points. So again, here's Cheryl Atkinson. Enjoy the interview. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, you've been so excited for this interview. You know, I read your book. I finished it last night, and um, it's been such a refreshing book. But at the same time, it's a little bit depressing, too, because, I mean, I, I keep up on current events. But, my gosh, the extent of what you kind of revealed is is a little, um, i got to admit, it's a little disheartening. But at the same time, it's refreshing to, to see that there's someone like you in the pursuit of the truth. What was the genesis of the book for you? I had um, experienced... Uh, what I felt was a shift in the appetite for original investigative reporting at my network after being there for 20 years, the last couple of years, it just seemed like there was a hesitancy to go after what they perceived as powers that be, whether they're corporate interests or political interests. And I compared notes with other investigative correspondents at conferences and felt like that was a trend because they were complaining of many of the similar things, whether they were in print or local news, or my colleagues in the national news. So I thought some of these things were worthy of dissection, as well as this new environment I think a lot of people don't know about, in which so much of the information you receive on the news and social media and elsewhere is manipulated by public relations forces who launch these paid efforts to controversialize stories that they try to stop, to attack the whistleblowers, the reporters, the news organizations that expose them. And it's a very sophisticated um, and entrenched cottage industry now in Washington, D.C., that with some success controls the media. Well, gosh, that's what, I mean, to the extent is a little bit, I guess it's not shocking to me. It's disappointing more than shocking, I guess. But what do we do for folks like ourselves? I mean, the circles that I run in, we are hungry for this type of investigative journalism that you're so passionate about. Why do you think there's a decline for this appetite or this seemingly decline from the powers that be? It seems like there would be a huge market for this. Yeah. I mean, you asked two questions. You said, what can we do? I'll get to that in a second if you remind me. But first of all, there's not a decline in the appetite among the public, as you, I think, rightfully said. People are thirsty for that. That's what made me and my producer think that something was up. The idea that some of these stories that would be so well-received and were so well-received by viewers. Um, And when we posted them online, if we couldn't get them on television, sometimes they circulated like wildfire. Why was it, we wondered, that our own news organization bosses, some of them, uh, seemed to want to filter out or censor these stories that would actually serve the interests of the viewers and even of ratings, the business interests, it would seem. And I think it has something to do with these orchestrated campaigns that push back. It has something to do with the connections of higher-ups, perhaps, in corporations that run news organizations. They have links to politicians and corporations. Um, Corporations and politicians themselves are inextricably linked these days, I think. So all these ties mix in a complicated way. I try to talk about a little bit in the book um, and result in what I see as sort of a control 
of the news product more so than we've seen in the past. I think there's always been an element of it. But to the extent, um, you know, my producer and I could not get any investigative and original stories that we proposed on toward the very end at CBS, which is why I left. And we proposed stories that had nothing to do with politics because we were aware that there were some key managers who had ideological um, interferences that they couldn't separate from their news judgments. So we even offered stories that had nothing to do with politics or political interests, and, and even those were turned away. So we felt there was something larger going on. As to what people can do about it, um, I hate to say I don't have the answer, but I really don't have the answer. What I try to do is put out information to help make you a smarter consumer. But I know that people don't have time to go do the sort of research I try to do for a story. I'm a journalist. That's how I you know, spend my time and make a living. Other people have other jobs. They expect us to do that for them so that they can rely on the research we do. Um, I think people are turning to sources they trust on a certain story and maybe reporters they trust on a certain story. And finding those those sources online or in alternate means because they don't see them necessarily in the news that's given to them, sort of spoon-fed to them on a daily basis. So good sources exist, and I think people are trying to find their own trusted sources. You know, I guess, you know, to a certain extent, the the truth of life, and it's always kind of been true, perception is reality. I mean, I think that's that's why you always have to be so careful when you're in a leadership role in a position. you got to always be aware of how you're being perceived. But gosh, it just seems, especially now, nothing seems real. It, and even in the as recently as, as um, you take the Ferguson case, and I'm, I'm not trying to get into political debate here, but if you, you look at an example in the best case where you've got a situation where it seems where so much effort went into, above and beyond, to at least get the accurate story out, but there seems to be this kind of culture of like it really doesn't matter really anymore. The truth, people are going to believe what they're going to believe. Um, how does that make you feel? I mean, it seems worse than it was thirty years ago. What are your thoughts? I think on that? I think social media and the web has made that worse. Although in some instances, it's it's been an improvement. I mean, I think the web and social media is a mixed bag. You can get access to information maybe you couldn't have before if the major outlets were trying to softly censor it, as I say. But on the other hand, you know, there's, there's this mix of information that's not true. Sometimes true information is mixed with untruthful information, and it just feeds, um, you know, it feeds people. I'm concerned um, on several levels. I, I agree with you that so much bad information got out initially, and that was probably the result of well-intentioned but just mistaken reporting and reports and witnesses. Sometimes maybe the witnesses weren't well-intentioned because it's been revealed they, they lied in some cases. But misinformation got out, and once it took hold on the Ferguson case, it became nearly impossible to correct it among a wide group of people. So the things that people are protesting now, while there may be questions worthy of asking, um, I'm, I'm quite sure that a lot of the protesters and people who are talking about this this story don't don't know the facts. And I know that because I've spoken to people about it. Um, they're still stuck on the first facts or the first mistaken facts that were reported. And they never, for whatever reason, maybe because it didn't circulate as widely on social media and whatnot, they never caught up with the accurate facts. So indeed, what they're protesting, while I'm not saying there aren't questions to be asked, but may not be in reality um, a response to what really happened, right. because they don't have they don't have the true facts. And 
So that's the media environment today. I think it's our responsibility in the media, and we don't always do a good job at it, of trying to um, slice through the misimpressions and the propaganda and present a clear picture. Um, I think people are trying with the Ferguson case, but sometimes that is drowned out by these other forces. Is the 24-hour news cycle, that that kind of monster machine that we've seen over the past 30 years, is it, is it, is it peaking? Is it, it seems like so much overkill. Um, is that part of the problem, do you think? I don't know that it'll ever change. That's just the new reality. I'm right. not sure there's a peak. But what's happened is the PR forces have learned how to use it. And you even see in emails that were forced to be released from the Department of Justice regarding the controversial Fast and Furious case, emails that have been improperly withheld under the president's executive privilege, the attorney general is discussing with his advisors how to manipulate the news cycle, how to control damaging information in the 24-hour news cycle. Let's, let's let it be one, not two cycles. Here's how you run into a couple of what they saw as friendly reporters to hopefully spend your side of the story on this. It's, it's very sophisticated. They spend a lot of time, federal agencies, just like corporations used to and still do, in a lot of time and tax dollars trying to figure out how to manipulate the media, how to spin their image, how to um, withhold information and then explain that withholding or explain it when it comes out why it contradicts something they testified to. And when you read through this material and you've worked, as I have in Washington for a while, it becomes a little bit overwhelming when you see how much effort and money they have and they spend um, to try to control the message and the media. And really you feel a little bit outmatched sometimes because we're, we have never, in the news media, developed a counterpoint to this sort of assault and this sort of manipulation. We're just sort of subject to it and we don't really have a way to to counter it. Right. Well, you know, what I like about you and I, really any investigative journalist like yourself, but you talk about when you went to school at, in Florida at uh, your journalism school and you talked about how the kind of the mission of being a journalist and how to have this kind of, you know, agnostic view of, of, of non-biased view as much as you can and you're passionate about finding the truth and digging and finding and, and you seem like a person who likes the battle, I guess, likes the fight. And I can appreciate that. I mean, People ask, why do we join the Marine Corps? And a lot of us say, because we like the fight piece of it. And that's how you kind of strike me. Is that fight still there? If you went to that same journalism school today, is that fight still being kind of taught, do you think? I think so. At my journalism school, University of Florida, and in fact, um, I'm donating um, a chunk of money from the book to the University of Florida Freedom of Information Breckner Center. And we're using some of the money to put on a seminar in the spring to make sure these young journalism students understand something that I haven't seen a lot from some of my colleagues, that when you go out into reporting and a federal official or a government official tells you you can't have a piece of information that the public owns, instead of shrugging your shoulders and just saying, isn't that terrible, they're improperly withholding a lot of information, you can challenge it and you should challenge it. And if we all did, I really think it would it would largely stop or at least dial back. Instead, We've all seemed to tacitly have accepted the way the government treats public information as if it's proprietary and if there's the government is some separate corporate entity owns it and is supposed to keep it from us. We don't really challenge that. Yeah. And if we all were to challenge it, maybe we could get the information. But um, I think there's just I see sort of the complacency among some 
some of my colleagues, not all of them, and among some journalists, young journalists maybe weren't even trained in journalism but fell into it, where they think they kind of just take the lead from whatever the federal government official tells them, and that's what we're supposed to report, and that's what we're supposed to do. And that's the opposite of what I think. And when you talk about the fight, um, you know, a worthy fight, there's nothing more, you know, more interesting to me than trying to pry obviously public information from the tight grip of federal officials who are trying to keep it secret. I agree. You know, it makes me curious. It makes me want to pursue it. And I think that's what we ought to be doing. Yeah. Where's the, you hit a great point there, the the curiosity piece. I mean, can we teach someone to be inquisitive? I mean, it's obviously in your blood and you're passionate about that. And I'm with you. It's like, hey, if somebody's starting to react and someone's starting to kind of freak out on me here because I'm asking questions, hey, I'm onto something. I'm going to keep digging. Can you keep? Can you teach that to somebody, or is that inbred in you? I think the best reporters who have that curiosity are born with it, yeah. and they become reporters because of it. I think some of it can be taught, but if you know, some people have asked me um, occasionally, "Why should I care about Fast and Furious? Why should I care about Benghazi?" And my answer sometimes is, "I can't make you care. If you don't care, I'm not trying to make you be interested in a story you're not interested in. But enough people are." And as a journalist, I see enough open questions that I'm pursuing it. But, you know, if if some journalists and some members of the public aren't curious and don't care, that's their prerogative. I just want the facts to be there um, for their examination. They can decide what they want. Is that, you know, when I think back in investigative journalism, of course, this is, I'm naive to to your, your world. I'm fascinated by it. And I love, again, seeing someone like yourself, the Lisa Myers of the, of the world's, um, and it frustrates me with that. I see you guys are, are frustrated. Can we get back to those days? I mean, for me, from, from an outsider looking in, I, I think of the Woodward and Bernstein days and kind of the romanticizing of that piece of constantly digging and having that kind of uh, editor that's always on your side. I mean, how do you, how do you battle that, the machine, I guess? It just seems so overwhelming. Um, it's tough, and you need the support of um, key bosses. I mean, there's there are always battles to be fought when you do original investigative reporting. That's common, even internally. And there are differences of opinion. But until the last couple of years, I always had strong bosses who could sort of set aside the peanut gallery and make sure that great stories got told and were not interfered with. Um, I think it's changed to some degree. At least for me, it changed. And some of my colleagues have reported similar things. Couldn't somebody? What at the highest level? What if somebody like yourself was at the highest level? Why isn't someone like you at that highest level of of the kind of the corporation? Is that or that is that just not something you're willing to do? I think people who are successful reporters and producers who love their job, they stay out of management because they love doing their job. A lot of times, the people who fall into management are ones who aren't as good at their job or don't like it as much. They would rather pursue a management course than a journalism course, which is slightly different. So someone like me, I don't envision myself ever, you know, leading some corporation or news organization. That's not what I want to dig and find the news. I don't want to, you know, lead people from a management perspective. I get that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But again, therein lies some of the challenges, right, to why, and that happens in any corporation, to be quite honest. You're absolutely right. I mean, you want to do what you're put on this planet to do and what you're good at. What do you think the future is for people like yourself and the Lisa Myers of the world? I mean, what's next for you guys? I have no idea what Lisa's up to, but um, I'm just continuing to publish on a freelance basis. And I've published um, more of the last 
since I left CBS in March than I did the previous two years, which has been great. So outlets like Sinclair Media, which they have more television viewers than all the networks combined and news because they own ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox affiliates across the nation. So I've been doing government watchdog stories for them. I've been um, writing print stories I call sort of orphan stories that others don't want to attack for various reasons, whether it's corporate conflicts or political conflicts. I've been publishing some of those for places like BlueForceTracker.com and Daily Signal, which is put out by the Conservative Heritage Foundation, which interestingly has not tried to interfere in any of my story content. That's been the one requirement I make when I contribute a story to anybody is they cannot try to steer the story, direct the outcome, change the facts. I mean, that would seem obvious. Of course, people shouldn't do that, but I felt like some of that was going on in the past couple of years at CBS. And I've had very good luck with um, outlets I've been contributing to that have let these stories tell themselves. You know, I'm curious about, i got a couple more questions here for you, but you know, what strikes me when reading the book and you look at um, President Obama on, um, I think, just a, a couple days or within the first month of his inauguration, and he talked about how transparent, how this is going to be the most transparent and open administration. And in your book, you point out how this is, and you and a lot of your colleagues believe this is, it's the exact opposite. How can someone go from, from saying that at the beginning, and I'm sure you guys were excited when you heard that, because you're coming off the Bush administration, but then goes into this complete lockdown, almost propaganda machine that it is today? Good question. I think that every administration knows there's an issue with openness, and every administration perhaps believes that they will come in and change things, and then no administration does. In fact, each one is worse than the last, and this one is markedly worse than the one before it. Um, I think the reality is once they get there, much as they would like to have opened things up and President Obama ordered Freedom of Information Act requests to be responded to, erring on the side of releasing information, almost nothing should be redacted or withheld, in my view, only, only material that's you know, directly related to harming somebody if it would be released or national security. But commonly now, nothing is released. They don't even respond to the request right. most of the time. Uh, everything, if they do get it, give it, you know, a year later is redacted and unhelpful. Um, and I think the reality was when, when they got there, just like other administrations, they decided some of this material would be unhelpful to them or embarrassing or, or worse. And they and their advisors decided, um, you know, better to take it on the chin for lack of transparency and withhold damaging information than to let it be out there in the public. Yeah. Ironically, the president, if you hear him talk, he still says this is the most open and transparent administration <laughs> that's ever been. That's despite hearing from the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the networks, the White House Correspondents Association, the uh, Washington Correspondents Association, the White House photographers, everybody's objected, right? right? And he still just says this as if it will make it true. Um, and, and I mentioned in the book, you know, the Obama administration measures its supposed transparency by the number of papers it's released and the number of hearings it's appeared at, which really have nothing to do with how right. transparent they're being if they're not telling the truth at hearings. And if the papers they're turning over are not the ones that were fully subpoenaed or are full of redactions. So yeah, that's just been a fascinating contrast, really. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's, it's amazing to watch. I'm curious who your heroes are. I mean, first of all, do you consider yourself a leader? I mean, from my vantage point, you are just a trailblazer and, and an epitome of leadership. Do you consider yourself a leader? Thank you. Um, I guess to the degree that 
I may be right now speaking out a little more forcefully about press freedom issues that I think many of my colleagues agree with. That may be being in the lead to some degree. Um, but I'm a little bit uncomfortable in a leadership position. All I really want to do is dig up good stories and report facts that people are trying to hide from the public. Um, as for heroes, it's not that I don't look up to anybody, because I'm sure if I thought really hard, I'd think of all kinds of people, but nobody comes to mind. I don't really heroize well, let, let me people. Well, ref- let me rephrase it then. If you, had the, you could have the ultimate dinner party tonight, you could invite five people, dead or alive, whoever they may be. Who would those five people be? Wow. Now, see, as a reporter, I have questions to that. The question is, if I invited them to the dinner party, would I get to ask them questions? Absolutely. And, you could... and if I could, it would be President Obama and Hillary Clinton and people <laughs> like that. <laughs> if it's more of a fun, less work dinner party, there'd be other people like um, astronauts. I think those are amazing oh, yeah. pioneers, but I've actually had the pleasure of getting together and asking questions on television of some of the pioneering astronauts. So, um I guess I'd have to put in some more time thinking about that. I love that you you know you can see the reporter in you getting wanted to get the more information. I'd love to have Obama and Clinton and, and Hillary in the same room, and then of course having a couple astronauts. I think that would be a fascinating dinner party, and I would love to come. So, well, you could you could we'd make a seat at the table for you too if awesome. I ever get that crowd together. <laughs> well, Cheryl, I love what you're doing. I I mean I've I've been familiar with your work. Again, I try to stay connected. I did. I must admit I. And this was a main reason a lot for this show. When I started this show two years ago, it was my kind of reaction to kind of checking out of watching the mainstream media because I just wasn't feel like I wasn't getting the truth. So a large part of the show was celebrating people who pursue the truth, and you're definitely in that camp. I love your book, Stonewalled, uh, your fight for truth against the forces of obstruction, intimidation, and harassment in Obama's Washington. It's a great read. I encourage everybody to go out there and check it out. How can people get in touch with you, Cheryl, and, and find you? Where, where, give a quick plug where they can connect with Just you. Just go to my website, CherylAckison.com. Even if you misspell it, it'll come up after the propaganda blogs from uh, the likes of Media Matters and so on, which somehow managed to come up really high in the search engine results. But you'll find my website, too. And um, I try to cross-reference all the reporting I'm doing on that site so that it will link to the other reports I'm freelancing out if people are interested in an RSS feed or following it. All right, Cheryl, thanks for coming on the show. Stick on the line for a little bit. We'll talk as I stop the recording, but uh, thanks for coming on the show. Okay. Wow, I think Cheryl Atkinson is great. It was just a, was such a fun conversation. I wish I would have had more time. She had to go to another interview, so we had to cut it short. But uh, she's just one of the great ones out there. And remember, I think when you read her book, Stonewall, and I think you get a sense from it when when you in this conversation that we had that she is – so passionate about the truth and about this country and about accountability. She, she tries to be completely as unbiased as she can. She I love how she consider, considers herself a political agnostic. But again, the, the key takeaway, I think, from talking with her, and if you read her book, regardless of your political leanings, is the pursuit of the truth. And as leaders, we have to always be prepared to pursue the truth, despite what the rules, the regulations, the process, the law says, or the pressure that we may feel. We must always pursue the truth and always be accountable and hold others accountable as well. Accountability is so lacking in today's society. And Cheryl Atkinson is a great example of what it means to pursue truth and to hold others accountable. You know, it's all about courage, right? I mean, I think your your life 
either grows or shrinks in direct proportion to the amount of courage that you can display. And remember that courage isn't just about the larger-than-life, life-or-death type situations. If something is making you afraid, it can be something so innocuous. You know, if you're afraid of saying grace at the table or, or giving that toast at the wedding, if it makes you afraid, it takes courage to work through it. And I highly encourage you to work through it because something great can happen on the other side. Cheryl Atkinson is living proof of that, and I know you can do that as well. So again, thanks for tuning into the show. Make sure you're leaving some comments. Leave a rating and review at iTunes or Stitcher if you haven't done so. It helps so much for the visibility. Drop me a line at richard at doseofleadership.com. Let me know where you're at in your leadership journey. And again, check me out at doseofleadership.com or richardryerson.com where you can find all my previous interviews, you can find out more information about my new online leadership course on becoming a leader. And also, if you want to reach out and need me to speak or do any kind of group coaching, I'm always available. So again, I look forward to hearing from you. And again, thank you so much for tuning into the show. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. 